Once again, I'm Jeff Adachi. I'm the public defender here in San Francisco, and uh, with great pleasure, I introduce the chief attorney of the office, Teresa Cafesi, who's going to be moderating uh, the next panel. Thank you, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're first going to start out with some clips that we're going to show you before we move into our next panel. hearsay evidence permitted to show a state of mind in order to bring into evidence the contents of a missing report, where obviously the report itself is the best evidence as to the contents of the report. That letter's a forgery. It isn't even my letter paper. It isn't? No. I write my letters on small blue paper with my initials on it. <laughs> like this? to understand right from wrong was damaged after watching thousands of hours of women who appear to enjoy being forced to have sex. Fascinating and repugnant. Look, I think we should meet with the public defender. See what he's like. Mom, an attorney in the public defender's office. <laughs> well, now, ah, uh, Ladies and gentlemen of the of 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 the jury, I'm willing to take your case pro bono, which means you get all of my expertise and hard work for free. Or, if you want to, you could get the uh, $40,000 a year court-appointed public defender who will almost certainly escort you personally to death for of your choice. I'm terribly sorry, but I can no longer represent my client. I need to be replaced as counsel. Order. 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 The first time I heard the term public pretender was 20 years ago when I walked into the holding tank for the first time. The last time I heard the term public Crusader was from a former law student talking about their perceptions of public defenders. So what are we? What does the public think we are? Public defenders and more broadly criminal defense lawyers. And what does it matter, if anything? 
Those are the answers we're going to tackle this morning. And we've assembled a great panelist to help us answer those questions. So first, let me introduce our panelists. To my immediate left is Jonathan Shapiro, an attorney and former U.S. assistant attorney who has spent the last several years and 10 seasons working on television dramas such as The Practice and Boston Legal. Next to Jonathan, we have Jamie Floyd, broadcast journalist and anchor for cable and network news. Many of you might know Jamie from her own daily live broadcast, The Best Defense. Next, Gerald Schwartzbach, a local attorney who has handled a number of high-profile cases, including the nationally publicized acquittals of actor Robert Blake and civil rights lawyer Stephen Bingham. And to his immediate left is Carol D. Hunnicky, a career public defender from Washington State. She is a blogger, and she has her own blog called Public Defender Revolution, which we're going to look forward to hearing about also today. So let's get to it. Does the media contribute to a negative misconception of public defenders and more broadly criminal defense attorneys? No. Thank you. <laughs> Jamie, why don't you first tackle that question and then Jonathan, you just chime in. Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, I think for the most part, uh, there is a lack of understanding on the part of the American public about the role of the public defender, the critical role of the public defender is laid out in our Sixth Amendment uh, in our criminal justice system. We don't teach it properly in primary school education. Uh, and the public learns of it uh, through the news media and to some extent, through the entertainment media. And most of my colleagues come at it with a bias that is predisposed against the criminal defendant and the criminal defense attorney, therefore. <clears throat> I don't think they're aware of this bias, for the most part. Of course, I'm speaking from my own anecdotal experience. Uh, but my reason for getting into the business was to try and counter that bias. I came at it from, by the way, an experience as a criminal defense attorney for many years. Um, and the bias filters into the programming, into the reporting, uh, into coverage of cases. Um, and many of the cases, most of the cases, do not have a camera present. Even when the camera is present, uh, it can't entirely help to filter out the bias. I mean, how many of you can sit at home and watch the Robert Blake trial from gavel to gavel, even if it is televised? Uh, but when the camera is not present, then you must rely on the reporting. And I've had many, many, many experiences where I would be standing at the microphone reporting on a trial, and I would listen to my colleague on my right and my colleague on my left and wonder if they had been in the very same courtroom I'd been in, because their sense of what had gone down in that room was so very different from my own. And I felt and feel often that their pro-prosecution bias is present. There's a presumption of guilt in this country when someone is charged with a crime. There's an assumption they must have done something wrong or they would not have been charged in the first place. Um, maybe that is just human nature, but it certainly makes its way into reporting. Um, I also do think that in our last 15 or 20 years of political context, 
because of the wave of crime, violence, uh, and, you know, we can even talk about, and I'll leave most of this to Jonathan, uh, the entertainment medium, uh, there's been a preference for law and order, CSI, programming of the entertainment variety that prefers a victim bias, as opposed to, say, the public defender, Perry Mason, programming before 1990 that preferred, if you go back to the 60s and the 70s, sort of a liberal uh, bias that we had in our country, that preferred the defense bar. I think the pendulum is shifting in the other direction. There was recently a program called Raising the Bar uh, that was uh, a Stephen Boschko program that very much focused on criminal defense attorneys. There was, of course, the practice, one of my favorites. I say not only because Jonathan is here, but because it was about criminal defense attorneys. But there is uh, uh, a cultural uh, response on the part of news media and I think entertainment media very much to what the audience wants to see. Okay, um, well, and I'll leave it there, and we can continue the conversation. So, so good segue. Uh, Jonathan, uh, from just kind of the commercial part of the operation, do you agree, would you agree, uh, that the media does contribute to the negative misconceptions, if there are negative misconceptions, of criminal defense attorneys? I'll make three points. Uh, the first one is uh, the Public Defender Show ran for a year. Law and order has run for 20 years in various forms. So the media reflects what the public wants. That's the first point. The second point is I was a federal prosecutor for about 10 years. And like any other prosecutor, I came to admire, respect, and, and really uh, be enormously impressed with the quality of work that the public defender's offices uh, that I litigated against uh, did. The best lawyers in D.C., the best lawyers in Los Angeles, for the most part, as a group, as an office, were the public defender's office. That's my second point. My third point is, you have a great product and you don't sell it. You have a great product and you don't sell it. All of the media uh, reflection of defense lawyers comes from those loudmouth, buckskin-wearing, absurd, you know the type, Barnum and Bailey showman private defense lawyers who suggest that they're some kinds of magicians. And somehow, the public defender's offices treat themselves like they're the clergy and that it would be beneath them to publicize what they do and how they do it. And the only reason I'm here, look, I pounded the table, is because I would like the public defender's office to do a better job publicizing their work. I agree with Jamie that the pendulum is swinging back. They're, they're, uh, we're, I was just in New York for the upfronts where we, the new shows for next season are, are presented to the advertisers. And there are several shows that are defense-based shows. Jimmy Smits is in a show. Um, David Kelly has another law show coming out. Kathy Bates plays a defense lawyer. I think there's a desperate uh, desire on the public's uh, 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 part to see a different 
point of view. And All the right, only, thing, Jamie, the only thing I'll add, and then I, I, I will stop, uh, that is in large part of the work of the Innocence Movement, Innocence Project and the Innocence Movement, that has started to prove to juries that they have gotten it wrong time and time again. And people understand that if you extrapolate from the numbers that we've seen, the Innocence Project alone pushing on to 300, the Innocence Project that's based in New York, 300 exonerations on DNA evidence alone, if you extrapolate, then we know how many thousands of people have been wrongly accused and are sitting in prison. So people are starting to wake up to the important role of criminal defense attorneys. But Jonathan is precisely right. At CORE TV, we cover cases that are, are where public defenders and criminal defense attorneys are in court. We don't choose the cases based on either or. It doesn't matter to us. We see fine lawyering from both. Very often, the best lawyers we see are public defenders. The public that we put our programming onto, they don't get the difference. They don't know. They don't know if it's Craig Alby, one of the best lawyers we ever televised on Court TV, who is a public defender, is a public defender, or if it's Jerry. They don't know. They don't get the difference. Uh, and when we try and explain it to our audience, they don't understand how a public defender differs from a criminal defense attorney. They really don't get it. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that the public has this fundamental lack of understanding of what a public defender's office is, does, and how it should be resourced. They don't get it. And this is a critical reason why I'm here today. Well, well what Jonathan, though, is suggesting, what I heard Jonathan suggesting, though, Jamie, and is that public defenders are responsible for the negative misconceptions because we're not doing our part to help change it in the commercial part of the media's job. Did I hear you say that, Jonathan? And Jonathan, if that's true, I want Jerry to tell us whether or not he agrees with that assessment. God, so, I agree with so Jonathan. Impressive. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. You haven't seen anything I yet, I did, young man. I interrupted Jerry, who was making a good point. <laughs> Jerry, do you agree with that? No, no, go ahead, John. No, I, I love what you said about agreeing with me. <laughs> go back to that. Well, I'll tell you, Jonathan said something uh, a little while ago that I absolutely agree with, um, and that is the media reflects what the public wants. And in my view, um, the media in general feed a voracious appetite for vengeance by an ill-informed public whose views about the criminal justice system are often influenced by fear, ignorance, and prejudice. And I think that one of the reasons that criminal defense lawyers are viewed so poorly is that people really don't understand the source of crime, or they, they, they want simplistic, quick responses to complicated, long-term solutions. You, you don't fight crime by doing what the governor is doing, is cutting social services and building <laughs> prisons. Um, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. All of us who have been involved in the criminal justice system know where people who commit crime come from. They're poor people, they're people of color, they're people, they're victims of abuse, they're the mentally ill, they're people who have substance abuse problems. They're the people who fall through the cracks of society. Um, but that's what the public wants, and the public is understandably afraid because crime's a real problem. So they tend to identify, and, then, and then, then there are these people who, um, who build prisons and service prisons, who give money to politicians 
who go out and run campaigns appealing to this fear and ignorance and prejudice and lock them up, and if we can't lock them up, kill them. Um, and they don't understand how short-sighted it is because they do nothing to really address the fundamental problems about, of crime. And so I think part of you know, educating people about criminal defense lawyers and public defenders is educating people about the sources of crime and that they, they really need to understand that the Constitution, if the Constitution doesn't work for everybody, it doesn't work. But how do we do that? How do we educate them? Uh, you bust Rush Limbaugh. All of a sudden, he learned there was a Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> or, or these conservative politicians who get busted, and all of a sudden, they say, oh, the Due Process Clause. I didn't know about that. I mean, I, I, but seriously, I, I, how do we do it? Um, I'm not sure how, because one of the things that I struggled with, um, in particular, in, in Robert Blake's case, is, uh, as I was saying earlier, when I got into the case, I was determined to not get caught up in the media stuff and to be the same person and same lawyer at the end of the case as I was at the beginning. So there is this conflict because I think lawyers need to be lawyers and not try to be um, uh, entertainers. Uh, so I, I'm not... You know, you guys would know better and, how, how and, to do it. And just so you all know, I covered him while he was trying that case and desperately tried to get him to talk to me <laughs> during the case but, but because I felt that it was so important for the public to understand the constitutional issues that were coming up but he rightly wanted to remain focused on the client and the case at the time while the case was being tried and Jamie, so that's Jamie, that asked the question how do we educate the public while remaining true to the cause of the work but well, wait do aside from me, we, just, I would just say that you know, I, I would commend your I knew office. I was going to have a hard time controlling these guys <laughs> You put lawyers on a panel and you expect them to shut up. Um, and you're not even wearing a black robe. Lucky me. Um, you know, I mean, what, what, and, and by the way, you know, putting a black robe on a jackass doesn't get you a judge. It just gets you a well-dressed jackass. But I think, I, I think this, this program and things that, that uh, your office has been doing, I think those are extremely helpful. And... and uh, but I, but I don't know how you do You know, I was just curious, and I'll shut, I will shut up. There was an article in Sunday's uh, Examiner about the recent, um, you know, uh, revelations about all these police officers Jeff was talking about who had criminal histories or misconduct. And, and, and one of the quotes was from this prosecutor saying, after they talk about how outrageous all this stuff is, I don't want dangerous felons released because we have not done our job right. Now... What they don't say in this, in this entire article, which is a front page piece, what they don't talk about is, well, not only is it, you know, a, a violation of the rules, but see, when you have people testifying who maybe shouldn't be believed, innocent people can get convicted. And it happens every single day. And there's not one word of that in this article. Carol, do you agree or disagree that public defenders contribute to this negative image? I mean, well, I should we accept some responsibility here? I think we all should. I, I think the causality of the media disconnect, I mean, it's obviously there. The media isn't showing what I see and do in my everyday life, and I'm sure all of you out there. But, you know, rather than pointing fingers and saying, well, I think it's the media's fault or the media thinks it's our fault for not talking to them, 
I think we all need to do a better job. I think what Amy has done with her book shows that sort of effort from a journalistic standpoint. She went into the courtroom and watched and saw what was happening and, and told the stories. By the same token, we can, we can do that too better as public defenders. That's how I came across Jeff Adachi's name because I had thought, you know, if, if public defenders were a major corporation and had this kind of image pro problem, there would be a massive PR campaign, and immediate, you know, and there would be commercials everywhere. Instead, we just kind of go, gosh, it really sucks that, you know, everybody thinks we're bad, but we're actually doing good work and have good motives and goals, and, and we are crusaders. And so why not present ourselves that way? And so I saw that um, Mr. Adachi had um, done some media campaigns, and in fact, I heard today that there was a commercial that was being done. So. So he must be brilliant because he was thinking along the same lines as me that. <laughs> Spoken like a true public defender, right? Right. Actually, so well, wait, wait a minute. Was so John's let me ask idea. you. So, what's that? It was John's idea. There, okay. So you know, from the broadcast journalism, from commercial journalism, they want to sell their stories, right? They want to sell their stories to the, the audience. They give the audience what they want to hear, what they want to see. But from the criminal defense perspective, though, I mean, is your priority in trial a little different than Jamie's priority when she's, you know, following a story? Um, uh, Jerry Quick and then Carol. The uh, priority is different, isn't it? I'm a, the, some of the advertising staff is a media expert. I'm not a media expert. I'm a lawyer. I'm proud of being a lawyer. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm enormously proud of that. You have to focus on... Uh, uh, on the issues that are relevant in your case. Now, media may be one of those issues, but you can't get caught up in it. You know, you have to pay attention to it in voir dire. Uh, you have to fight like crazy, increasingly so uh, these days, to get judges to, uh, uh, to let you ask questions so you can actually attempt to get a fair-minded jury. But um, the, the media, just like some other, looks like a piece of evidence. It's part of the, it's part of the puzzle, but you can't get focused on the media. You have to, if you're a lawyer preparing or trying a case, be a lawyer. Just focus on being a lawyer. Carol, do you agree with that? I do agree with that, absolutely. I, I also think that broadcast journalism, it, it's seeking that emotional hook that can relate to their audience. And emotional hooks in criminal defense cases sometimes, oh, sometimes favor us. She's not talking to you. No. <laughs> I'm talking, talking to her. <laughs> So these emotional hooks, oh, wow, that's loud, um, sometimes favor the defendant, but a lot of times the, emotional, the emotionality will favor the victim or the accuser, um, whereas we have something that's as sexy as, well, they didn't prove that, you know, or, boy, they forgot the chain of custody, and that doesn't sell as well. So, I mean, obviously we have different interests. They want to sell their stories. We want to win our cases, and so if... If the media helps us win our individual case, we'll use it. But if not, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Jonathan? It seems to me, specifically, though, the Public Defender's Office is in a different position and needs to take more responsibility for getting the message out of the good work it does. The reason I say that is because it's always going to be a complicated question on an individual case how much the lawyer should or shouldn't talk to the media. And there are rules that constrain what the lawyers can and can't say when talking to the media. That's a very interesting topic and, and something worth considering. But I'm talking about something different, which is 
At the U.S. Attorney's Office, we had a press office, and that press office was in charge of issuing press releases. And those press releases extolled the wondrous work that we did as federal prosecutors. And they were always headed by the name of the current U.S. Attorney, who was looking to then become a judge. The Public Defender's Office needs to understand, it seems to me, that they're competing in a more complicated world when it comes to media than existed 10 years ago. That if they were a corporation, the public defender's offices in the country would have to, to accept that they have an image problem and that they have a great product that the public doesn't understand. And so it seems to me one question we might ask is how can we help the public defender's offices get that message out? And it matters. This is, this is not for your ego gratification. It matters because you're publicly funded. When it comes down to your budgets, the Public Defender's Office has got to rely on the same funding sources as the prisons, as the prosecutor's offices, as the courts. And as stakeholders in that, at that public trough, it seems to me the Public Defender's Office, through some sort of martyr complex, which I respect, but <laughs> that somehow it's unseemly yeah. to, to bang the drum for what you do. Somehow it's unseemly to say, you know, but for us, these injustices would be tenfold. And I don't think it's unseemly. And in fact, I think what's irresponsible is to not start telling people what you're all about. Well, Jonathan, does this mean, though, if, if, if that's true, then, then you as a producer, as a writer of television dramas, what do you do with that material? I mean, do, does the audience really want to hear about public defenders or crusaders? And, and that's what we're, right, because I, I, you want to sell your product. You asked me a question. Well, let me answer. I, I'm <laughs> Are you guys married? A Atticus Finch was listed in the AFI list of the, the, the 100 most popular heroes in American cinema. Number one, Atticus Finch, which as a prosecutor always used to tick me off, because what did the guy do? He gets a point at the case, he loses it, and before he can appeal, the guy's killed. Then, when his daughter is, is uh, involved in the case, he basically obstructs justice by, by pretending Boo Radley isn't the killer. Now, everybody loves Atticus Finch, right? Even though he loses, even though he obstructs justice. When I was on the practice, we, we had a character called Alan Shore, who we then spun off as, as uh, one of the stars of the Boston Legal, who would destroy evidence. People loved him. It seems to me that, that there has to be perhaps a, a, a reimagining re from the public defender's offices as to what they do. And it's a tougher message. Jerry talked about the fact that we all know where crime comes from, and he listed a group of people. Well, that group of people is also where crime victims come from. Mm -hmm. it, it's, 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 a lot, it's a lot easier to get people behind rooting for the victim of crime than the potential perpetrator. Where I think the Public Defender's Office is missing a real great opportunity is, and I, I'm going to just say this, but it's very controversial. I used to not understand why the pro no one ever told the people at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you wear a dark suit, you wear a white shirt, you wear a blue tie. You look like a young Republican, even if you're not. <laughs> And I don't know where they told the public defender's office, if you're a man, you should have a ponytail and an earring. <laughs> you know, just in case the jury might think that you're not a drug lawyer. 
And, I, and I'm, I'm talking, am I talking about style? Am I talking about how you present yourself? Am, yeah. And I think it matters. This was actually a storyline on raising the bar. It was a big storyline where the main character, uh, Jerry Callahan, I think his name was, based on David Figer, who wrote a book called Indefensible about Bronx public defenders, is uh, made to cut his ponytail uh, by the very mean woman judge before whom he appears all of the time. And it was a big controversy in the writing room where most of the writers are public defenders. But ultimately he does get the haircut and look like a young Republican and begins winning more cases. So let me ask... I was going to say, I normally agree with everything that Jonathan says, but my cousin Vinny won with a purple suit. <laughs> uh, and that's why you're dressed like Archibald <laughs> Cox. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I just can't, I just can't, uh, yeah. Old friends, the, the, old friends. So, um, That's why Jamie's sitting between yeah, them, you know. What, what, one of, um, I mean, we've known, John and I have known each other for, shit, 15, 20 minutes. Um, it seems what, one thing I think that public defenders can do, yeah. because I'm not a media person, I'm really not a media, these, these folks know better uh, what public defenders should do. But one thing I can tell you that, that public defenders should do is that public defenders and lawyers in private practice should not view each other as the enemies. They should not, they, the, the criminal defense bar, whether public or private, needs to be unified. And when you're unified, it, it not only, it, it increases your numbers, it also increases your financial base with which to try to do the kind of media uh, efforts or contribute to the media efforts that that Jamie and Jonathan are talking about. Go ahead, Jamie. I wanted to just pick up on something that both Jerry and John said, and, and, and I agree entirely with Jerry. And, and I'll say to you now that I agreed with your focus during the Blake case and, and other lawyers with whom I've dealt, public defenders and private lawyers, uh, though we do pound the door and try and get that interview and try and uh, distract you from your cause, you are right to be focused during the case. And ultimately, we, we did have the conversation after verdict. Um, but, but in the end, I think it is important uh, to be concerned about the image, not during the case, but in general, of, of public defender offices and criminal defense attorneys. And I think it is also important, to pick up on what Jonathan said, to make a distinction, while I agree a concerted effort should be made, to make a distinction for the public, between public defenders and criminal defense attorneys, for this reason. Um, when we would go out at Core TV, we would go out with our, our microphones and ask people about this distinction. First of all, I just have to let you know that people can recite the law and order language, you know, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two equally important groups, blah, blah, blah. They can recite that. They cannot recite the Sixth Amendment. This, this troubles me. Okay, so that, that's something you should know. Uh, but they also cannot tell you, as I said earlier, the difference between public defenders and criminal defense attorneys, appointed counsel, etc. When we would tell them about public defenders, they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. And to a person, whatever they would describe their political affiliation to be, they liked the idea. They supported it. And they wanted their tax dollars to support it as well. They want public defenders to exist. But they need to know about public defenders and about that resource question. They need us to tell them. That's why, that's why we're here today, and that's, that's got to be a part of the public defender mission. But there's an, and so I support everything Jonathan said, but there's another thing to keep in mind. This is the Drury Pool. 
This is the Drury Pool. And the Drury Pool is constantly affected and infected by Nancy Grace, by law and order. It is constantly being polluted, I believe, I truly believe this, by the media. Now, you know, it sounds, it sounds silly. It sounds silly. But it's not. I really believe in the power of media to influence people. That's why I got in it. And so we have to use it to our advantage. You've got to be in it to win it. And if, if we're not controlling our image, someone else is. And so you've got to start to think about the ways in which the image of the public defender is going to be portrayed either in dramatic television over which you're going to have a lot less control, let's just face it, or certainly in news media. Uh, many years ago I got a call from Franz Huch, who used to be a public defender in San Francisco. He had a case that was receiving a lot of media attention and he wanted me to come and cover the case for 2020, which was a national outlet. And some of his colleagues, quite frankly, thought he was nuts. I mean, why are you bringing Barbara Walters' organization in to cover a case at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office? They really turned their noses up at him and thought it was just plain silly. And, and as Jonathan said, um, you know, some people, uh, it's part of a martyr complex. It's anti-intellectual to be talking to the television. Uh, it's egotistical. Some people said, Franz, you're being egotistical. It was none of those things. He wanted attention for the case because he knew attention would help him to win the case. It would affect the jury pool. It would affect the prosecutor's decisions. It would affect the judge if it ever got to the sentencing phase. And ultimately, he won the case. So, I am here to tell you that you can influence certainly the way public defenders are portrayed in news media, and perhaps even those folks who write for the entertainment media. And Jamie, that's... The, now and oh, in the future. Okay. So, actually, I want to, be, before we move into how we possibly can help change that image, I want to ask Jonathan a question then. Today, how would you cast for the role of a criminal defense attorney for a television series? Well, I've had the uh, pleasure of having to do that twice. I, I created two really wildly uh, critically acclaimed series that no one watched. And they weren't that critically acclaimed, I might have. But, uh, so I, I, it's a very, inter very interesting question. I've, I've had the experience now on uh, two separate occasions of uh, sitting with casting directors trying to cast the role of defense lawyer. And... Uh, uh, it, it's interesting that, that a defense lawyer can look like uh, America. Kathy Bates is playing a defense lawyer. Um, Jimmy Smith is playing a defense lawyer in these two shows that are starting. But there are certain qualities, and i, I just take one moment to explain that, that um, they focus group test television shows like they do with new car models. And the companies that do that work are the same companies that also do mock jury trials. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your audience is also a jury pool, is also the jury pool. And, and the qualities that, that they want in a defense lawyer uh, are the, all the qualities that you would imagine if you were descri you know, describing Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. Someone with high integrity, someone who will fight and do anything it takes to win. Uh, they don't have an expectation that it has to look like Raymond Burr anymore. could look like anyone. 
But those qualities seem to, to be universal. They, the, those haven't changed. Those are the same qualities that they were looking for, you know, when Perry Mason was popular. Sort of the old traditional values. And uh, it seems to me that if the AFL-CIO can buy ad time uh, on Dodger games to explain to Dodger fans <coughs> that unions do good work, I, I don't understand why public defenders can't do the same thing. And, and the last point I'm going to make is I, I serve on the um, California Judicial Council Bench, Bar, and Media Committee. You know, or maybe you don't, that newspapers are cutting back their coverage of courts all the time. So the traditional media, the traditional journalistic way of getting your story out doesn't really exist anymore. And that's bad, but it's also an opportunity. The, the idea of blogging about what public defenders uh, do, the, the opportunity to sort of step into this void and get your message out directly, uh, I think is, is incredibly important to your mission. So, Carol, what does blogging do uh, for our, our public image? Well, it might also get me fired, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's an easy way to publish. I, you know... There are a lot of barriers to other forms of the press, but here's something where there's a little button that you click and it says publish, and then it's out there. And if you can attract enough readers, you can get your message out, whether it's telling stories of day-to-day -day public defender life, which I've tried to do some, but I've also tried to use it as um, sort of a incentive to get people thinking differently about ways we can change public defender's office, so um, to spur change, I guess. So that's one way that we can use blogging. Um, I think it's still sort of a new form of media, even though it's been around you know, 10 or 15 years. And so we're just starting to develop some of the ideas of how we can use it. So, so do you, can you give us examples of how your blogging has affected the media's influence on uh, the public's perception of, of well, I'm defender here. broadly, perhaps? <laughs> Speak, tell us about your blog. Yeah, well, the, Go ahead. The fact Go. that I'm here, I think, says something because I wanted to just speak to public defenders. They were my target audience, and I wanted to make it so we could have more cohesiveness. And people from all over the country, public defenders, started contacting me, telling me stories about their day-to-day -day lives. Um, I have some lawyers contacting me and say, I have 400 felonies a year. Um, and... Only some of those are Class A felonies. <laughs> you know, what can I do? Those sorts of stories, when they're repeated over and over again, um, can gain momentum. <clears throat> I've transferred some of the stories that I've gathered because I think um, public defenders that contact me trust me because they know that I'm one of them, not one of the others. Um, with their permission, I've given that information to some professors who are doing scholarly studies and people who are more invested in change. So it's just a way of connecting with people and also getting some stories out, I think. All right, so, so as we, Gerald, Jerry? Um, yeah, I'm not sure the most effective way to, to, to communicate the message, but I think part of the message, you know, John was talking about, well, you know, the same place, you know, most of the victims come from the same place where most of the people accused of crime come from. Part of the message that needs to get out there, it, because um, talking about justice and all that stuff, it's meaningful to folks like us, but it, it doesn't play all that well with people who are afraid of crime and or people who are out of work. Um, and part of the message has to be, it seems to me, 
that, again, going back to the sources of crime, that from an economic point of view, if you want to actually save money, you should do things that effectively um, will fight crime as opposed to, uh, you know, making you feel tougher and stronger. Um, and also, if you can get out, part of the message is, look, it's a travesty when, any, when anyone is wrongfully convicted for that person and that person's family and friends. But the other part of that is, if that person's wrongfully convicted, there's somebody out there who's actually the criminal. And so part of the message has to be financially, because, you know, we, you know, we know we've been told for years and years and years people vote their pocketbooks. So you have to, you have to make a financial analysis. And I'm, I'm certain it would save an enormous amount of money. And you also have to get people to understand by making the criminal justice system work, you actually make yourself safer. Not by, not by just, you know, feeding your ego or feeding, feeding your prejudice or let's get them, let's get them. Well, you'll never know when you're going to be one of them. That's such a good point. And if I could just follow up. That, that's... That's a wonderful point, and it's sort of what I was – you've said it much better than I was trying to say it, which is the, the idea of the justice system only belonging to the prosecution is what has to change. When I got to stand up and say, Jonathan Shapiro, on behalf of the United States of America, and the poor defense lawyer had to stand up and say, Joe Smith, for this schmuck <laughs> – you get a sense that, that the system itself has almost bought into it. The, the fact is that if you convict an innocent man, you've, you've committed a far worse crime than any other kind of crime because you've let the guilty party off scot-free. That's an incredibly important message that, uh, you know, if anyone's waving the flag, it ought to be the public defender's office. And it's their reluctance to do it somehow. Uh, to the, 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 the sense that perhaps if they do that, that'll make them seem pro-government or something. We, I just, I find, I've, I, I've never been able to fully grasp. Okay, let me ask a question here, and I, and I think this is hopefully going to go to what Jamie's going to speak to a little bit, but should we, should we remake the image of the public defender into the public crusader? I mean, is that what we really want to do, and do we need to do it? Should we? Jamie? Or no? Pass? <laughs> well, I, I certainly think so. Listen, I, I bought into the, the public crusader thing when I was a child. I wanted to be a public defender. Ironically, here I am not serving as a criminal defense attorney or a public defender. I, I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney from the age of eight years old. I saw Perry. Yes, it was Perry Mason. I saw Perry Mason when I was a child, and um, my father used to take me to the courthouse to watch the lawyers practice law when I was eight years old. And, and I believe in the mission, and I believe in the I'm – a, I'm a true believer. Um, and I think those images influence children. We have one here in the front row. Um, and I think uh, some do serve as – prosecutors first and then become criminal defense attorneys, but many, many, many of us want uh, to defend that Constitution and those rights from the very, very beginning, from jump, as the kids say. Uh, so I, I think 
we don't need to just believe it in our hearts. We need to profess it publicly. Uh, but that's just my view. Uh, I do believe, though, that Jerry's right. It's not enough for us to talk about it amongst ourselves. Uh, it is a larger public dialogue that needs to happen in terms of the resources, in terms of our jury pool, uh, and that does mean talking to people who identify more with victims. We now know that there are one in 100 people behind bars. That means that one in 100 people uh, know somebody connected to the criminal justice system. Well, that's a tremendous opportunity for us, isn't it? That means there are people in every sector of the society who identify with our cause, who really get it. That's when people start to understand the import of the public defender. Uh, and we can also, uh, you know I, know, I know Barry Sheck won't mind my saying this, for the last 15 to 20 years, they've been talking about the innocent man who's been wrongly accused, and everybody does think that's a terrible, terrible tragedy. Nobody on any side of the political aisle would think that that is right in America. But their message really started to sing when they shifted uh, and, and we at CORE TV were working with them on this. Uh, and I w was the first reporter to begin covering uh, the Innocence Project on a national basis. Uh, the message really started to sing when they began to talk about victims believing for 19 years that the right guy was behind bars and then learning that the wrong guy had been behind bars. The victim, twice victimized. So we're going to... And that, go ahead, that's how it. you start... When, when the defense bar can start to work, believe it or not, with victims' rights movements. And it's very, very hard to get, to get the defense bar to think in those terms. But that, that I think, is where we may need to go. I, I know we want to... I'm sorry, just one quick... Well, you know, lawyers, lawyers bear, you know, share a, some of the responsibility for the poor image. There's no question about it. There are a lot of great lawyers. There are a lot of very bad lawyers. But lawyers, you know... A very sad thing for me is that law has become a media event as opposed to a profession. And there are lawyers who prostitute themselves and go on television or on radio or get quoted in newspaper, quoting, you know, talking about cases where they really don't know what's going on. And, and they do a disservice both to the public and to the profession. And we need lawyers who, if lawyers are going to participate in the media, and they should and they need to, and I, I did you know, somewhat in Blake, I always responded, whenever I thought there was something negative, I responded to it. But in fact, we, we had a jury questionnaire in Blake, and it was something between 70 and 80 percent of the prospective jurors believed he was guilty. Um, you know, so... Before a single witness. Before a single witness. And, and um, you know, so, the, the, you know, the media does affect things, but lawyers have to take responsibility, too. Lawyers have, to, lawyers have to rise above their ego to the principle upon which they, that, that, that motivated them to become lawyers in the first place. So it's not like, it's like, it's, it's not like we don't bear responsibility for our own image. So we have some questions uh, from the audience uh, that we'd like to ask, although I think we've, there's so much more we could talk about just in terms of remaking our image, whether we have to remake our image, and our responsibility to make uh, that change if, if, it's, if it, in fact, it's needed. But let's ask some questions that the audience has now. First question. Based on the discussion so far, I believe you are putting the cart before the horse. If the victim industry is so profitable and the villains are clients, how do we, as the attorney, really change our image? Shouldn't we be trying to change the public's perception 
of the system as a whole? Would any of our panelists like well, to I, I mean, I, I think tackle that, that? I think I was, I was trying to address that, and John talked about it as well, and, uh, it, is that we have, we have to... Um, we have to point out what we have to make the discussion a broader discussion um, so that people uh, understand how it affects their daily lives, how it affects the way government uh, works. Um, you know, are you going to get, uh, is there going to be money for, uh, to, to are, are state parks going to be open? Are there, is there going to be money for education? I mean, what does it say about this? I believe this is correct. What does it say about the state of California, where I believe the largest union in this state is not the Teachers Association, but the Correctional Officers yeah. Association. What does that say about a society? And we, we just have to broad, and, and, and when people find out about that, they're stunned. But then, but that is the reality, and that's, that's what playing on people's fears, ignorance, and prejudice has resulted in. So, A different perspective here from the panelists? Want to add anything? No, except it also points to what Jerry said about what you have to do in each individual case. I mean, that's what you're up against in terms of trial strategy in the individual case. Which often is different then. When you're in trial, the priority is your client, yeah. which is different from broadcast journalism and television drama. But to the extent your case has, got, you has received uh, media attention, you have, to, you have to factor that in to certainly into your voir dire and uh, perhaps motions you make. And, uh, you can't turn a blind eye to it. Next question. I mean, ahead, I just please. have to say that question is deeply, deeply troubling when you look at cases. I mean, there are just some cases where it's a no-win situation. The, 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 the Robert Blake case, uh, what, what, what Jerry managed to do in that case was truly uh, a lesson for, for law students and lawyers, trial lawyers across the board. You look at a case like the Casey Anthony case, which is now happening down in Florida, and you have to think to yourself, how on earth does, does she win a case like that? I mean, any case that receives uh, nationwide attention is lost before you walk into the courtroom, and you, it's, it then becomes your job to turn it around. There's a presumption of guilt on any client, and then you add the nationwide attention, and it's, it's insurmountable. Could, are you almost saying, then, that we have a responsibility, really, as criminal defense lawyers, to speak to the public? Yeah, You've got to figure I, out what I, you want to say and no. who you can trust to say it to, but what you're saying is you almost have a responsibility yeah. to get your in, client's in, message in, across. In, in, mo in most cases, in most cases. Next question. Aside from public attitudes about defenders, is there something inherently more challenging about being a defender in the limelight than being a DA? First question. Is there something more, uh, is there something more inherently challenging about being a defender in the limelight than being a DA? In, in, the, limelight. More in the limelight. Yes, that was the first part of that question. Maybe. Well, everything. Go ahead, Carol. Well, we, it's everything that we've talked about. There's the inherent bias against us um, as criminal defense lawyers. And then as public defenders, added on top of that is the fact that we have this sort of presumption of incompetence or being, you know, just somebody that's new and doesn't know what they're doing. Um, and that our clients are probably guilty or they would have, you know, hired a real lawyer. Um, it's amazing in some ways, considering all those biases, that we ever talk to anybody in the press. <laughs> because it's like, why, why would we go to that source that we have been so, our image has been so abused in, to say, hey, will you be fair this time? But how do we change it 
if we don't go to that source. I think we have to anyway, but I think we have to overcome that initial resistance to go there. Jerry, you wanted to chime in here? I say, uh, years ago I was in a court-appointed capital case and we had a questionnaire and one of the questions was, what do you think about prosecutors? Wonderful, they stand, they protect us, blah, blah, blah. And what do you think about criminal defense lawyers? And this one juror wrote, who wrote all the positive things about prosecutors, he just wrote one word, sleazy. <laughs> And so when I was vaudeering him, I said, look, you know, we've never met. I didn't take it personally. But, but you know, what, what, you know, you said prosecutors, wonderful, 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 criminal defense lawyers, sleazy. Oh, I meant it in a good way. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, see, that's something else. That people, people don't appreciate how important jury selection is. Because it doesn't matter what the law or the evidence is if you don't have people on the jury who are willing to follow the law and pay attention to the evidence. And, and judges often totally lose track of that because they want to move these cases, move these cases, move these cases. Um, uh, but particularly in a media case, I mean, but in every case, voir dire is at least as important as yeah. any other part of the case. Yeah. One of our uh, members of the audience would like to know, how do you get the public to agree and understand our good work? which involves an excellent defense of the guilty and sometimes an acquittal for some. You know, it, it's uh, the medical profession accidentally butchers about 100,000 people a year. Right? <laughs> Kill them dead. And yet, people love doctors. And this is a wonder to me. I, I uh, had the pleasure of convicting four doctors over my time as a prosecutor, and my only regret is that I didn't convict more of them. <laughs> and yet somehow the public loves doctors. Now, I don't know if that's because there's a position in our government, the, the um, Surgeon General, who represents the medical profession as a government uh, do-good service. And there's nothing like that for our profession. The AMA does a lot uh, better work than our bar associations. When Jerry is representing Robert Blake or someone like that, he is working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, giving zealous advocacy for his one client. When the public defender is handling 400 felonies, they don't have time to remake their image. The, the bigger, the, it seems to me the biggest problem that, that we face is to recognize that we have a problem. And the problem is there is not an association or a spokesman who represents the position Right? It's too much to ask the individual lawyer or the individual public defender's office to do it. But a group of public defender offices working together to pool their resources to educate the public as to what you do in the interest of justice might actually start to change attitudes. Uh, last question. What effect has the, quote, war on drugs, specifically the racialized stereotype of the drug dealers, been on the portrayal of the parties involved in the criminal justice system? Could you repeat that? Certainly. What effect has the war on drugs, specifically the racialized stereotype of the drug dealers, been on the portrayal of the parties involved in the criminal justice system? Yeah. Someone mentioned the wire? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, everybody loves to talk about post-racial America. Um, 
but um, I think we all, I think most folks in this room would agree that we are not in post-racial America yet. Um, the, 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 the media, I mean, look, I, I, that's, it's almost an entirely, you know, another panel to talk about race in America and the media and the intersection of crime in America and race. There, there is, um, I think, a perception uh, among people in America that the victims of crime are different from who the victims of crime really are. Um, and th those of us who cover crime, I believe, are guilty um, for creating those misperceptions. The crimes we cover, the stories we cover, um, and the reality of uh, the, the victimization of folks in, uh, in crime um, has created this, you know, it's, it's the missing white woman, missing white child, missing baby syndrome. Um, that's what we talk about. Uh, on the other side of it, you have the so-called war on drugs, the Rockefeller drug laws that we have in New York. I came in from New York. That's been a big conversation, but not in the news media, only in the criminal justice circles in which some of us travel. Um, and we all know who is behind bars, but the American public doesn't seem to really know who is really behind bars and why they're there and whether they really belong there. And Jerry's right. We use the criminal justice system as a social service center for problems that really need to be addressed in other ways. Um, and I think that if people were told by the folks in my business that this is not an economically efficient way to do things, they might come around to doing things another way. <laughs> um, but there are too many people invested in doing it the way we do it um, for us to get there. And the people in my business are not... Um, necessarily familiar enough with the criminal justice system to understand why it is the way it is. Most of us don't come from this business. We come from the business of making news. Very few have a criminal justice background. So it's a, I think that's a very, very difficult question. The wire in and of itself is a difficult and controversial question. Just that program could generate a panel conversation, and I know it has and it does. Um, but... but um, I think that, that the public defender's role um, just on, on the issue of drug crime violence and reform, reform of the drug laws in this country, and, and you know, I can really only speak to the state of New York where I am, but I think that is one place in which perhaps, maybe, maybe when we talk about remaking the image of the public defender, we take it piece by piece and issue by issue. And maybe that's the issue where we start. Um, if, if, the, if the task seems too great at first, as Jonathan was saying, in terms of resources and, and the, the, the caseload, maybe we go issue by issue, and maybe that's the place to start, especially in the Bay Area and San Francisco, where I think the public would be more receptive to reform and hearing from public defenders on that given issue.
Thank you. Anyone else? Well, with that, then, I'd like to thank our panelists and all of you for being with us today. Another book called Behind Bars and Beyond Bars. So check it out on over at 1.30. And so we see that we got one more panel today. It's a great panel. And we'll see you back at 1.30. charge of overseeing director and directs commercials and uh, he had a proposition that he would create Five months ago, uh, Tom Donald uh, approached me. He's a director and directs commercials. And uh, he had a proposition that he would create a professionally produced public service announcement about public defenders. And how could I possibly say no uh, to that, uh, that very uh, generous uh, proposition? So I'm going to ask Tom to come up and uh, to say a few words about how he got the idea uh, for this public service announcement. I think you will agree uh, when you see it, it's unique. Uh, you haven't seen anything like this on, on television. Tom? Uh, as Jeff mentioned, I'm not an attorney. I'm, I'm a director and a filmmaker, and I actually have a ball cap to prove it, so I'll, <laughs> I'll put it on. We all learned this from Steven Spielberg, who uh, popularized the uh, use of baseball caps. Uh, Jeff's right. We talked. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of, of Jeff for a long time. First of all, I want to thank him for the opportunity to uh, to make this piece. 
people talk in my position often talk about giving back, and it's usually um, worth about the price of the words and that nothing more. But in this case, I've known Jeff for a long time, and I know the good work that he does, and I really did want to make the contribution that I could. We talked about, Jeff and I talked for a long time about themes for this commercial, and we decided kind of mutually, I think, that the presumption of innocence, I heard the panelists in both panels talk about this repeatedly, we decided that the presumption of innocence was really about the highest ground that his office could take in a broadcast television commercial. But beyond that, i forgotten her name, very articulate young lady, I think is on Court TV, was talking about post-racial America and how all of us collectively and singularly the people on television and the media would like to believe that that is in fact the case and yet we all know, I think everyone in this room at least, can recognize that that is not the case. And so really this commercial is the marriage of those two ideas, the marriage of the concept, not the concept, but the bedrock principle of our code of justice which is the presumption of innocence and the recognition, if you will, that we have a ways to go, we have a long way to go to combat stereotypes, prejudice, and outright bias, not only in the judicial system, but in our American society. And that's what, what resulted from the coming together of those two ideas you'll see on the screen. How do you like it so far? It's kind of compelling, when you say? Incredible job that uh, that Tom and his crew did, and we're going to be making this uh, public service announcement available to public defenders all over the state, all over the country. Uh, we're going to be rolling it out in the next couple of weeks, so watch it uh, watch it on your tube. Uh, we have lunch for you in the uh, next room over. The Latino Hispanic room is on the same level. Uh, simply walk walk over that direction, and we'll be back here uh, right at at uh, is it one fifteen or one thirty? Uh, right at 1.30. And so we see that we got one more panel today. It's a great panel. And we'll see you back at 1.30. Four or five months ago, uh, Tom Donald uh, approached me. He's a director and directs commercials. 
going to be looking at this issue, but we need a lot of. Thank you. And part of that is going to involve leadership uh, within uh, the ranks of the public defender. Uh, I know that the California Public Defenders Association has a media committee and is going to be looking at this issue, but we need a lot of people to get involved. And about uh, four or five months ago, uh, Tom Donald uh, approached me. He's a director and directs commercials. And uh, he had a proposition that he would create a professionally produced public service announcement about public defenders. And how could I possibly say no uh, to that, uh, that very uh, generous uh, proposition? So I'm going to ask Tom to come up and uh, to say a few words about how he got the idea uh, for this public service announcement. I think you will agree uh, when you see it, it's unique. Uh, you haven't seen anything like this on, on television. Tom? Uh, as Jeff mentioned, I'm not an attorney. I'm, I'm a director and a filmmaker, and I actually have a ball cap to prove it, so I'll, <laughs> I'll put it on. We all learned this from Steven Spielberg, who uh, popularized the uh, use of baseball caps. Uh, Jeff's right. We talked. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of, of Jeff for a long time. First of all, I want to thank him for the opportunity to, uh, to make this piece. People talk, in my position often talk about giving back, and it's usually... Um, worth about the price of the words and that nothing more. But in this case, I've known Jeff for a long time, and I know the good work that he does, and I really did want to make the contribution that I could. We talked about, Jeff and I talked for a long time about themes for this commercial, and we decided kind of mutually, I think, that the presumption of innocence, I heard the panelists in both panels talk about this repeatedly, we decided that the presumption of innocence was really about the highest ground that his office could take in a broadcast television commercial. But beyond that, I've forgotten her name, very articulate young lady, I think is on Court TV, was talking about post-racial America and how all of us collectively and singularly, the people on television and the media, would like to believe that that is in fact the case. And yet we all know, I think everyone in this room at least, can recognize that that is not the case. And so really this commercial is the marriage of those two ideas, the marriage of the concept, not the concept, but the bedrock principle of our code of justice, which is the presumption of innocence, and the recognition, if you will, that we have a ways to go. We have a long way to go to combat stereotypes, prejudice, and outright bias, not only in the judicial system, but in our American society. And that's what, what resulted from the coming together of those two ideas you'll see on the screen. How do you like it so far? It's kind of compelling when you say.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Wasn't that great? I mean, just, just an incredible job that, uh, that Tom and his crew did. And we're going to be making this uh, public service announcement available to public defenders all over the state, all over the country. Uh, we're going to be rolling it out in the next couple of weeks, so watch it, uh, watch it on your tube. Uh, we have lunch for you in the uh, next room over. The Latino-Hispanic room is on the same level. Uh, simply walk, walk over that direction. And we'll be back here uh, right at, at uh, is it 1.15 or 1.30? Uh, right at 1.30. And so we see that we got one more panel today. It's a great panel. And we'll see you back at 1.30. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back. I hope everyone had a nice uh, lunch break. Uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Simon Shamji, who is the managing attorney of the Public Defender's Office Reentry uh, Unit, and she's in charge of overseeing uh, the work that we do in helping uh, clients and former clients uh, get back on their feet and lead productive lives. Uh, part of her job is to oversee the Clean Slate program, uh, which we started 10 years ago. Um, and helps individuals uh, clear their uh, criminal records. Uh, Simon? Good afternoon and welcome back. Um, as Jeff said, my name is Simon Shamji. I'm with the Public Defender's Office and I do oversee the Clean Slate program. And for those of you who don't know, Clean Slate was um, is San Francisco's original reentry programs that was started over a decade ago. At the time, we were helping just a few hundred people each year, and today we help over 2,000 people clean up their criminal records. Um, our goal is to help people have a dignified um, return back from the criminal justice system. And um, we are very, very proud to have this um, panel here today. Uh, it's entitled Paving the Road to Reentry, Clean Slate and State Statewide Criminal Record Reform. And this discussion comes at a very urgent time when there is an unprecedented amount of people incarcerated and these individuals are returning from prison at the rate of 600,000 per year. And in California, that rate is 115,000 per year. In California, over a million people have an, a conviction record, and one in five individuals has an arrest or criminal conviction. So we have to ask ourselves, is criminal record reform then an urgent priority for California? And if so, what is being done? 
and how can we go further? So let's hear what our distinguished panel has to say. Our first panelist is Dr. Stephen Richards, a renowned author and professor of criminal justice at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. And I have to say that Dr. Richards probably won't authorize this, but I am going to make a, a plug for the books that he's written. Um, he's going to be very mad at me for doing this, but I do want to say that he's written the book Convict Criminology, another book called Behind Bars, and Beyond Bars. So check it out on Amazon. Um, we also have with us Maurice Amsalem. He is the policy co-director of the National Employment Law Project. And Eliza Hirsch is the supervising attorney in the Clean Slate Practice at the East Bay Community Law Center. Welcome, panelists. So I want to tell the audience that while we're having the discussion, if you have questions, feel free to write them down, and the ushers will get them from you. At the end of this discussion, we will have a question and answer session. So I'd like to start with you, Dr. Richards. It is my understanding that you have some personal experience in this area, and I would ask you to share your experiences with us and tell us about the barriers that exist for people who have a criminal record. Well, I'm a convicted felon, I'm an ex-con, and I'm a professor. And I'm the leader of the convict criminology group if you just go to Google and Google convict criminology, you'll find our website. Um, our group was actually started many years ago by a Professor John Irwin, who was at San Francisco State University for 30 years. Uh, John recently passed away. Um, and John, even after he retired uh, in 1995 for nearly 15 years, uh, he helped me to organize the convict criminology group. There's now 30 of us. We're all ex-cons, PhDs, and professors at different universities. Well, because I'm a convicted felon, I should say I went to federal prison for nine years. Excuse me. This is an emergency. This is a life or death situation. I am here, and the authority is mine to say as I do. Accept or deny, deny the blood's on your hands. I was present as a, as a witness to the case from Amiya Abu-Jamal, convicted of murder. The information's been denied twice, so I came to a public forum, which included a lot of attorneys and persons that have claimed to be involved in trying to rectify these matters. It's as certain as the Catholic Church denying the Gospels of the Holy Twelve. I am here. I will be, touch me one more time and find a fire. I will be outside for five minutes with this information, and the information specific to Mumia Abu-Jamal will be on our site by 7 o'clock this evening in detail. Thank you very much. Thank you. Continue, Dr. Richards. We love excitement. This is, this is all intentional. Only in San Francisco. Hey, I'm happy to be in San Francisco, and, and actually that kind of brings me to the point I want to say is that, you know, this morning we, we were in the courtroom, and we had lawyers, public defenders, talking about legal cases, talking about the roles they play. 
And, and what I think is, has been lost here, and maybe even this gentleman kind of raised it, is what happens to these defendants. What happens to them when they, they go back into the court, into the lockup, after they've pled guilty? Um, you know, about 95% of them are plead guilty. You know that they're being uh, forced to plead guilty. You all know it. I mean, it's like there's a gun to their head. I call it the terror of arithmetic. They're being threatened with 100 years, 50 years, 20 years. You know what that does to them. They go back to their jail cells. Those numbers bounce around in their head. After a week or a month or six months or a year, a year and a half, they plead guilty. And you know, as public defenders, one of your main jobs is to make them plead guilty. And I know you don't want to hear that. And I know that you think you're doing the right thing for your client. And a lot of that's because you don't want to know the rest of the story, which is what happens to them later. For example, myself. I was a student at the University of Wisconsin. I had no criminal record. I, I got arrested in a marijuana conspiracy case. No possession, no sale. I was threatened with 150 years. 150 years. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, which is a town not unlike San Francisco. They, they couldn't put me on trial in Madison, in Wisconsin, so they took me to South Carolina. And they put me on trial in the Strom Thurmond Federal Courthouse in Charleston, South Carolina. Across the street was the Mendel Rivers Confederate Cemetery. And from the courthouse, they flew two flags, the U.S. flag and the Confederate battle flag, which was the, the state flag of South Carolina. From the courtroom, I could look out the window and see Fort Sumter in the, in the distance. They put me on trial in a case with no marijuana. And they, they invented imaginary marijuana. They said that the, I was charged with conspiring to distribute 10 tons of Colombian marijuana. 10 tons. I pled not guilty. I had a jury trial. I was found guilty of one count, acquitted on nine. I had an appellate case and a Supreme Court case. When I, I was then facing 15 years, they sentenced me to nine. I went, when I went to federal prison, I did time in eight different states and nine different federal prisons, including four penitentiaries. That's maximum security. That included Atlanta, Terre Haute, and the United States Penitentiary at Marion, the first super federal max, and then Leavenworth. That's on a marijuana conviction. I spent most of my time in solitary confinement because I had an appellate case. You don't know this, but if you plead not guilty and you get a jury trial and then you have an appellate case, you go directly to solitary confinement where you don't have access to the law library, you don't have access to your attorneys. So I spent most of my time in federal prison in solitary confinement because I had a, an appellate case. You don't know this. When I came out of federal prison, I went to graduate school directly into graduate school. My first semester in grad school as a master's student, I remember that they, the, the chair of the department asked me, can you teach criminology? I said, sure. You know? <laughs> sure. 
The first day I taught class at the University of Wisconsin, I had 500 students. The entire front row were Milwaukee police officers. And I told them, I said, hey, I just got out of federal prison. And they looked at me, and I said, uh, we're going to have a good time. Well, hey, it's real. You know, and that's what I want to do for you today is make it real. I want you to realize that what you see is only a piece of the story, what happens in that courtroom. What happens later is when they go to prison. Dr. Richards, could you tell us some of the barriers that you faced um, from, from the transition from prison into the community? When you get out of prison, usually now there's no gate money. They're walking out of prison in many states in their prison uniforms. That's with the number across their chest. I mean, it's really a miracle they don't get shot as, escape, as escapees. They're coming home to the community with no winter clothes, with no eyeglasses. They've had no medical attention in years. They're coming, one good thing, they're getting out of prison, they're usually, they're usually sober and not on drugs. Because usually, not, not, not always, but in prison, at least, the, the, at least the idea is that in prison they dry out. But when they get out of prison, I mean, in prison, they're just warehouses. I mean, there's no prison programming anymore. There's, there's no college programs. I mean, there is one at San Quentin here, face, uh, thanks to the people of uh, your community. But that's one of the few in the country, the one you have at San Quentin. So in prison, all they could get was a GED in general. They come out with no gate money, no clothes. None of them have jobs when they get out. And they go home to what? I mean, if, if they've been locked up 5, 10, 20 years, they go, they go home to, their families don't even welcome them home. And Dr. Richards, can you tell us what impact does somebody's criminal history have on this transition from uh, the system into the community? Well, in, in seven states you can never vote again. In most states you can't vote while you're on paper. Um, you, because of the criminal background record checks that are now ubiquitous, that are incredibly common, you have a hard time renting an apartment, getting a car loan, getting any kind of job. I mean, I'm a convicted felon. They wouldn't hire me at Walmart. I, I couldn't work the, the cash register at Burger King. I mean, most occupations and professions are closed to you because you're a convicted felon. And what does that mean? I just want you to hear what this means. When you look outside here and you see all these homeless people, many of them have felony convictions, mostly bullshit felon, felony convictions the little felonies. And that's why they can't get jobs. And that's why they're out there panhandling and sleeping in doorways. And, and, the, and their numbers are just gonna, going to multiply next year, the year after, 10 years from now. So let me ask Maurice and Eliza, would you agree that there are significant barriers for people who have criminal history records? I would agree. Um, and it's not just, I know that um, Dr. Richardson has talked about people who have felony convictions and who've been to prison, but I was really struck this morning by the stories um, that Amy Bach told and um, uh, the gentleman who is a reporter in uh, Santa Clara County told about the people who have those misdemeanor convictions they got without representation. And I just thought I'd take a second to talk about what happens, um, in, at least in Alameda County, after those nothing throwaway convictions. Um, for misdemeanors. So 
in Alameda County, they probably end up on court probation for three years, which means no Fourth Amendment rights and no services and um, no supervision so far as if it's helpful, which means they often, but, you know, get um, warrants. Um, while they're on probation, they're ineligible for the clean slate remedies that exist under the law. And I don't call it expungement because there's no true expungement in California, but the dismissals that exist, they're not eligible for that, which makes it very hard to um, get jobs because as um, most job applications ask the question about criminal history and convictions, and they cannot lawfully answer no convictions. And so... Um, then they're subject to extensive um, criminal background checks run by commercial companies, and I know Maurice will talk about the impact of that. So they can't work. They owe court fines and court fees often. They can't pay those back, which means they can't get the dismissal even when they're off probation. Um, so you can just see the cycle that goes on here. I mean, um, people uh, we've had people don't know that they are are ineligible for applying for firearm licenses after many common convictions, and so we've had clients who um, have these throwaway convictions pick up new misdemeanors for applying for a permit to own a firearm. So it's just a cycle where there's lots of barriers. They also have trouble, as um, Dr. Chen talked about, finding um, ho uh, rental property, going to school, getting loans. Um, Sometimes uh, what frequently happens is people will pay a great deal of money to get into some of the technical schools, truck driving school. Um, they want to become a certified nursing assistant. Um, these kind of lower wage jobs, they pay money, go through training programs, and graduate and find out they will they are ineligible for those licenses because of their criminal records, or they have a great deal of work they have to do with their criminal records before they'll be eligible, and they've just spent a lot of money because the schools took their money. So. Um, the horrors that were discussed about what happens in the courtroom like only continue for those people and I was thinking about the guy riding his bicycle down the street and I and all that it meant um, for his future in terms of um, having that record. So there are significant barriers for folks who have criminal history records and so Maurice would you agree that we need criminal reform criminal record reform and if so why? Well, I think, there, first I just want to say a couple words about what we do at the National Employment Law Project. I'm, I'm actually, many years ago, was a legal aid attorney in New York and, and practiced criminal law, but for the past 20 years I've been an employment advocate. We do, we practice employment law mostly on behalf of low-wage workers and kind of got into this whole issue when it became clear that there are some legal handles available to protect the rights of people with criminal records who are seeking jobs. And I can talk more about our project in that area. But anyway, so I come at it from the point of view as an employment advocate. Um, and so the, the problem, which, which we've seen a lot, we have this project uh, called the Second Chance Labor Project, where we're representing workers trying to navigate these criminal background checks, these criminal background checks that just permeate every occupation that you can think of. And especially since September 11th, um, you know, you've seen way more requirements, both by private employers and requirements imposed by state and federal laws. And in California, for example, um, there are about 200 occupational licensing laws that regulate just about every occupation you can think of. You know, if you want to be a private security guard, a home health care worker, anything up and down the line, there's a good chance there's a law that regulates um, your occupation. Same with federal laws after 9-11. There are 
uh, a report worker in the country. If you have a felony going back seven years, you can't work at, at the port without going through a TSA background check. Million and a half port workers in the past year had to go through that system. So those 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 checks are everywhere. So, but there are some basic employment rights that people have, and actually here in California, we have some good laws on the books. We need a lot more work, and we'll talk about reform of these laws um, some more. I'm happy to talk about that now, but but I just want to mention there are some good laws on the books that protect workers. Um, and, uh, for example, you have this issue of, you have multiple levels of access to all this criminal record information. Um, as Dr. Richards mentioned, first it's um, you have the state criminal record system that is basically the upload of all the local county records. You have the federal criminal record system, which is considered kind of the Cadillac of the record systems out there. Um, that's a, a, an accumulation of all the state records. And then you have all these private screening firms, ChoicePoint and uh, LexisNexis and all these guys, big, big corporations that are making a lot of money on criminal background checks, credit checks, and all that. So in California, those laws are pretty heavily regulated. In California, for example, the private screening firms can't report arrests, or they're not supposed to, and they can't report convictions going back more than seven years. The federal law is not even close, is not nearly as good. That's, that's consumer protection law. And then as, as, um, as Eliza mentioned, uh, applicants are entitled not to report arrests on an application. So as an employment advocate, we're very familiar with lots of good laws in the books that are never enforced. And so the real challenge around these good laws that are on the books is to get about enforcing these laws. And that's what, that's a lot of the good work that EBCLC is doing. A lot of other projects around town are doing that would probably be really good to connect with in, in your work. I don't know if you want to talk about, jump right into reforms. Yeah, or tell us, tell us about what reform, you know, what's next? How can we be successful in taking what the good, what you mentioned that there's some good laws on the books. Mm -hmm. Do they go far enough? And how can we take it further? And, and how can we effectuate this reform? Right. That seems to be critical at this time. I'll just tick off a few things real quick. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, we had this huge proliferation of background checks. You have this huge proliferation of this industry that's collecting all this criminal record information. Um, and then you have way more people walking around with a criminal record, one in five. Uh, as was mentioned. So there's this huge potential for problems. The, the issue is that the laws and procedures and protections and all that have not even close to caught up with, with this huge problem that we have now. And so that's where I think we need to start. We need to really check in on all the basic protections that apply and, and, and go about the business of reforming some of those basic laws. So uh, I'll just mention a few of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, first of all, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's the basic uh, law that protects, civil rights law that protects against discrimination in employment. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, Clarence Thomas used to be the, the head of the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Back in the 80s, he signed off on a directive that said that Title VII applies to employment decisions that are based on criminal background checks because those decisions have a disparate impact on people of color. So there's some great procedures in place that say that uh, employers can't discriminate against somebody based on a criminal record unless they can show that the record is directly related to the job, that it's not an old record. Some basic common sense standards 
that are not enforced because people mostly walk around, employers mostly walk around uh, saying anybody with a criminal record, felony, misdemeanor, these blanket policies uh, are illegal under Title VII. So we need to strengthen Title VII, update Title VII, and we need to apply those kind of Title VII standards to state law as well. And there's a good piece of legislation, AB 2727, that would do some of that. Um, then, um, you know, we need to, in, in San Francisco was one of the first communities to adopt a policy called ban the box. How many people are kind of familiar with that? Okay. All right, all of us are none. So all of us are none is responsible for getting this whole thing going that now 21 local cities and counties around the country have adopted San Francisco's policy. And three states now, two in the past year, where they remove the question about your criminal background from the job application and they delay the background check process till the end, the criminal background check till the end of the hire process. So basically they remove a lot of the stigma around the criminal background, and they're creating a more fair process of giving you a shot at the job based on the merits of the position. So way more, you could do that at the state level, way more, the feds could do that. There's a, there's, and like I said, there's a lot more interest in that. So I've been talking a lot. I'm going to stop there because I'm sure the other folks have a lot more to say. Eliza, talk to us about um, changes in the law and, and what are some of the um, efforts being uh, made in California right now and where, where are we falling short and what needs to be expanded um, as it relates to prior criminal arrests and convictions? Um, Maurice talked about the meta issue of discrimination against people with criminal records. So the ban the box, um, if, if, that, if that were successful in all jurisdictions, would mean that we wouldn't need these other remedies. But I think we're a long way off for that being the national um, standard, unfortunately. So um, what I work with people on every day is cleaning their records up to the extent allowable under California law. So cleaning your record up to the extent allowable under California state law is really different from saying clean slate, which I was saying I often feel like at worst a liar and at best raising expectations unfairly because there is no clean slate in California. Um, but we are trying to improve the laws that there are and expand them. So actually this um, session in the assembly there, um, my coworker Jesse Warner, who works on policy in my office, has been successful in working with uh, community partners and putting forward AB uh, 2068. And it's really um, a technical fix. It's not something that's terribly exciting. And if I say it, your eyeballs will all fall out of your head. But basically, it just um, updates Penal Code Section 1203.4a, which is the expungement or dismissal remedy, um, and it brings it up to um, the same level as 1203.4. So that's boring. The point is, it's in some cases, people who can get that remedy for cases when they didn't go to prison, they will be eligible to legally say on certain, I mean, catch all my conditions here. Some people, certain jobs, they are able to answer no convictions on certain, for certain jobs. But again, it's a far cry from not even having to answer those questions, which ban the box and the um, 2727 where he's talked about would 
effectuate. So, um, the, I mean, the problem with the laws in California are that they're very piecemeal. They were written um, over a long stretch of time. They don't really interact with each other very well, and they don't do as much. I'm, I feel like I'm being so negative. So I'm going to try to think of something mm -hmm. positive to say, which is that um, they do help certain people. I think a major problem we have is that the remedy for um, people who have gone to prison in California, for those cases for which they were sentenced to a term of prison, even if it was a paper commitment, the only remedy is something called a certificate of rehabilitation. And essentially what that is, it's a it's so far from expungement. It's a gold star on your criminal record that you get to take around and show people, basically, for rehabilitation. So that would be my dream to um, work on that because um, the, and the other option is pardon, of course, and I think Governor Schwarzenegger has granted six pardons or something, and they're not to my clients. So back to Dr. Richards, nor mine. Um, well, actually, maybe a few of ours. Um, I want to return to Dr. Richards. Um, I think I cut you off, and, and you, were, you were giving us a more real perspective on, on the impact that uh, the criminal history has on a person's life, and I, and I want to give you back uh, your time. Well, I appreciate um, the legislation and the work you do and, um, and the work that you're doing. Um, but I think we kind of – we don't realize how big a problem this has become. I mean, in the United States today, you know, we're this global power. We're fighting wars, right, that don't end. I mean, you all know this. I mean, and, and the war has come home. The war is in the streets. We've arrested millions of people for drugs. I mean, I'm, thank God I'm in California. Show me some pot, you know? <laughs> you know? Uh, California is wonderful, you know? But, I mean, it's not that way in the rest of the country. They're still giving people felony convictions for possession of marijuana. I mean, I mean, this, you guys are like really progressive. The rest of this country is not. The rest of this country is fighting a war that you can't even protest. I mean, I mean, we're so far, even though, you know, Barack's in the White House, isn't that great? Well, the, the, the country is more right wing than you ever realize. And, and, you know, besides Berkeley and Madison, Ann Arbor, San Francisco, I mean, the rest of the world, this country is right wing. So what does that mean in terms of what's happening? Well, we got seven million people in constructive custody. Seven million at this moment. That's pr jail, prison, probation, and parole. Last year, there were 18 million people arrested in the United States. One third of them, about six million, were released within 24 hours. About two-thirds of them, something like 12 million, spent a day or longer in jail. So, I mean, we are incarcerating and felonizing this population. You cannot discriminate by race, but you can by criminal record or by even criminal arrest. In Wisconsin, where I'm coming from, which is a blue state, very liberal, right? You know, Wisconsin, it's against the law that have intercourse until you're 18 years old. Now I want to ask, let me just ask you this. This is San Francisco. Let me ask you this. How many of you have smoked pot? Come on. Come on, come on, come on. How many of you, how many of you, I ask this to my students every semester, how many of you had sexual intercourse before age 17? Now, in my state, you're convicted felons. Right? So I tell my students, I tell them, I'm going to take, my university's 15,000. I'm going to take my students, and we're all going to march down to the police station, and they're all going to confess to having sexual intercourse <laughs> before age 18. My point, what I'm trying to tell you is, there's no escape anymore. 
I mean, they fell in. It's not just the criminal records. I, I really feel sorry for our children and our grandchildren. We are felonizing, you know, recreational drugs, felonizing recreational sex. I mean, well, we all think, oh, we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, and how can they do this? I mean, I go into prisons and I'm interviewing lesbian women who are 19 and 20 years old who got 20 years for having sex with a 17-year-old. She's 19, she's 17, she got 20 years. I mean, that, that's what it's coming to. You know, I mean, we got, we got, in this country now, with mandatory minimums, with these damn sex laws, I mean, I mean they, sex is illegal, guys. You know, it's illegal. I mean, next they're going to start arresting people for having sex, you know, out of marriage. You know? But the sex offender laws, there hasn't been a word about that today. It's worse than the war on drugs. And you can't, if you get arrested on a sex offense, it could happen to any one of you. You talk about the schnooks and the schmucks and, and, and the them. You're all them. Any one of you could be arrested for what? Inappropriate touching? Right? What's that, five, ten years? And it, I mean, it gets to me now, it's not just about criminal records. I mean, any one of you could be arrested tomorrow based on, uh, on the supposition or the allegation of some witness that said that you sexually assaulted them in the elevator, in the parking lot. I, I think Dr. And there's no defense. There's, I mean, it'll ruin your career. You'll lose your home. You'll lose your marriage. You'll lose your kids. And then the public defender will make you plead guilty. I, I mean, I just... Um the theme of the fear of crime, and I think the, we, that was touched on a few times today, and um, the more fearful we are, the more laws we have and the more um, prisons we have, and I think that's what Dr. Richards is touching on. And, and in the realm of criminal record policy, the more fear there is, that there's just the more laws we have that limit what people can do, people who have criminal records can do. And I was just going to say... Um, an example of that this um, this session is um, there's a bill pending, and I'll name him. It's um, Assemblyman Knight from, um, I think, Palmdale, and he, it basically would um, say that anybody who has ever had a drug conviction cannot volunteer in their child's school as a per se rule. So there already are laws in the books that allow school districts to do criminal background checks via fingerprinting, which is necessary, but um, this would add this um, permanent exclusion for any and I'm not talking like only meth labs, I'm talking about any possession. So that's an example of the ever-expanding um, range of laws that limit people with criminal records. Um, that's AB 2034. And so, so I want to ask the panelists, is, is there anyone here who can inject a little hope for, <laughs> for the folks? What, what is, we know the what. We know that there are barriers. We know that the laws are overreaching. We have widespread dissemination of criminal history records. We have employers that ignore the laws. So what's the solution, Dr. Richards? What's the solution? How are, how is, how are we going to turn this around for California and for the nation? Well, this is a paper that, uh, that uh, I'm actually giving this paper in two weeks in Finland at a conference. But just some of our, our ideas. This, that come out of the convict criminology group. 
The first is end the war on drugs. And just end it. End it. The war on drugs starts in 1960 with Richard Nixon. It's been going 50 years. You know, nobody has even kept count of how many people have been arrested. What is it, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million? I mean, it sounds like something out of Stalin's Russia. You know, let's turn in your neighbors, turn in your friends, give them a list, you know. You know, if you turn in 10 people, you'll get less time in prison. I mean, I mean that's what it is, you know. So, so this war on drugs is, is something out of Stalin's Russia. End the war on drugs, and let's stop this war on sex offenders before this gets way out of hand. It's already out of hand. And I, and I know we're concerned about sexual assault and rape and, and people assaulting women and children. I know that. Most of the people in prison as sex offenders are not those people. Most of them, I call them Romeo and Juliet's. You know, he's 19, she's 16. You know, or she's 19 and he's 16. And, and that's who most of them are. And let's face it, we should know, especially in San Francisco, that as human beings, we're not real comfortable with sex. I mean, some of us don't even know who we are, right? I mean, right? From day to day, right? 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 I mean, you know, I mean, sex is a very complicated issue. The idea that, that sexual behavior and, and people's aberrations with it or problems with it or confusions should send them to prison. You know, for life sentences. In Wisconsin, they have actually, they have the same thing in Iowa and Illinois. They actually have built prisons well, just for sex offenders. Can you imagine? The entire prison are sex offenders. They're mostly young men. You know, that's what they are. Young men who are confused about their sexuality. You know, as my son was or your son was. Well, let me continue with this. Just some of the, the suggestions we've had. Um, correctional workers. I hate the idea of uh, saying uh, 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 correctional officers or parole officers. Get rid of that word officer. Uh, you know, you got police officers. Isn't that enough? We got like two million of them, right? It should be like social workers. It should be correctional workers. It should be it should be parole workers. Hell, get rid of parole officers and probation officers altogether. And and I call them resource resource centers. So that when somebody comes out of jail or prison, it wouldn't matter if they come out of a mental hospital or they came out of a mentally retarded group home or they're getting out of jail or they're sleeping on the street. When they get out, they go to something called a resource center for help. And there, there would be social worker people that would help them. It doesn't really matter if they get out of jail or get out of prison or they're sleeping on the streets. It's all the same people. Right? In a different piece of their journey. So, so first we close some prisons. We, we provide prisoners with a real pre-release program, which means at least money to live for 90 days. It takes at least 90 days, right, to get a job, find a place to live. You know, they're walking out of prison in many states with zero, no money. Um, mercy, mercy releases for ill prisoners. I, you, know, you know what they do in federal prison? If you got hepatitis C or you got AIDS or you're HIV, they lock you in solitary confinement until you die. That's what they do. That's what they do. I mean, I've seen Marines 
out of the military prison, I've seen them in Leavenworth dying in solitary confinement. Marines. Because they got AIDS or hepatitis C. Uh, convert prisons into what I call residential treatment centers. You take a prison, it's real simple. You knock down the gun towers, you take down the razor wire, you, you fire the corrections officers. Those are those people with the badges that make 150000 a year. Fire their asses. <laughs> no? Hey, I'm all for the union. I don't like their union, you know, but I'm all for the union. And, you t and what you do is you rehire people back as correctional workers. And what happens is, in the state of California, they should do this, where somebody needs help because they're drug addicted or alcoholic, or they got a bad temper and they're going to beat up their wife, or they're going to sexually assault their, their stepdaughter, whatever the problem is, let's do something about crime. Before they commit the crime, they got this urge, you know, to do something illegal. They call up the police and say, I need help. Can you imagine? I need help. I'm drug addicted, I'm alcoholic, please help me, right? And, it, and, and they are directed to this residential treatment center where they can voluntarily commit themselves for, for, for three to six months. And when they're there, they'll, they'll do a workup where they, on their health, a lot of people, you know, they don't have health care insurance, so they, don't, they, need, they need a health care assessment, they need a social work assessment, a vocational educational assessment, they got three to six months in which they work with them 24-7 to, to, to upgrade their, their behaviors and abilities um, rather than wait for them to commit a crime and then send them to prison, right? So we, we call these residential treatment centers. I figure if the place has 2,000 beds, right, that, that you, they can treat as many as 8,000 people a year. You know, in California, the reason you've got so many heroin addicts on the street Right? I saw, I saw him shooting up last night, you know, behind my hotel. And the reason you do is because if you are a heroin addict, you cannot get residential drug treatment. And the only people that can get it are those of us with health care insurance. They need help. And we all know that. We all know anybody will tell you on the street that we need residential drug treatment. So here we got them. Take some of these damn prisons, take down the gun towers, turn them into residential drug treatment centers. So let me interject here. So Maurice, um, what are your suggestions as to the reform? And, and uh, one area that we haven't really talked about much is, is the impact of technology. Um, where, where is that going now and how do we need to expand that? How do we um, deal with uh, the information that's being disseminated and how do we slow that down? I mean, are there other areas that also are, are bleeding into, into the employment and um, into housing? And wh what's the solution here is my, is my question. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, and a lot of people in this room are aware of this, and Jeff Adachi is a real leader in this. I mean, I, there, there has been real leadership around the country to come up with smarter ideas to deal with the problem of crime. And, and I think, uh, and we've had a lot of good um, examples of policies, state and federal, local, for the past 10 years or so. And, and so there, it's, to me, in a way, the reform agenda is not that big a secret. 
Uh, there have been a lot of good reports that have put it all together in one place, the housing part, the employment piece, the drug treatment piece. I mean, I, I think the real challenge and, and has been touched on is, is really leadership, and a lot of it has to do with leadership and people really stepping up in leadership positions. Um, and, 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 and unfortunately, the politics of the equation are still really complicated. So that's why, you know, that's what Eliza was saying. You know, it's so easy to drop a bill and create havoc on thousands of workers. And, and that's what happens for political reasons. I mean, I, I honestly don't think that, you know, you, you remember when the, when the trucker, when the truck blew up on the other side of the, the Bay Bridge, that, and, and there were a million accusations that that trucker had a criminal record, and that's why, basically, the truck blew up and we had all these problems. And so there were bills that were dropped. There were statements that were made by leading politicians. We got to deal with, you know, boxer on down. It turned out the guy, you know, his record was very minor and had nothing to do with driving or anything else. I mean, the guy was fine. He had been working hard to put his life back together. I mean, we want to reward that kind of thing. So I'm just saying, I, I think it's going to, it takes a lot of real leadership. And there's some great leaders out there who are starting to step up in addition to good political figures and DAs and, and public defenders. I mean, I, I really give a lot of credit, for example, to the civil rights organizations uh, that are starting to do a lot in this area, the NAACP and Ben Jealous. Uh, the, the, current, the, the new director of the NAACP really has made it a, an, an important issue, and that's what it's going to take, uh, honestly. I, I mean, we could run down the list of all the great things there are to, to do, but we have to push back on this kind of hysteria around crime, and it takes leadership to do that. It takes individuals, all of us, to do it as well, to put pressure on our leaders, but it takes real leadership to do that also. I guess I would put, that's how I would put it all together in one place. In the, in the, um vein of like what's hopeful. Um, I know that there's a reentry coordinating council here in Alameda, I mean in um, San Francisco County, and there's also one in Alameda County. And what's been so hopeful to me is that I think that overwhelmingly we have this um, being tough on crime problem as opposed to being smart on crime. But I think that even in places where you wouldn't expect it, people are starting to make the connections. Um, so for example, um, Lieutenant Burnham from the Sheriff's Department in Alameda County is one of the most consistent and supportive participants in the um, in the Coordinating Council for Reentry in Alameda County. And it's just, it, it, I would say it's an unlikely ally, and I, I'm sure that we're lucky in, um, in his leadership and support. And I hope, but I do think it's because they're starting to see the connection between services and opportunities for people after incarceration and, um, and, and the outcomes, which are positive. And, and in the same vein, um, my office, we, are, we have funding um, to provide legal services to people with criminal records. And um, unfortunately, um, the San Francisco Public Defender is unique in the state. There are a few other models, but it's unfortunately not in every county in the state. But there is a clean slate project here. And um, it doesn't, that's not a foregone conclusion that, that those services are available. So um, the other thing is, I, I, in my bad attitude, I probably glossed over the, the good laws that do exist. Um, one challenge, and I think it, um, where I hope we see a lot of movement is helping the um, kind of de um, dismantling the structural barriers that people have and face from accessing what laws do exist. So that would um, that would be another one. We, I mean, from the from at very least providing these legal services around the state, um, also. Um, 
just a simple know your rights campaign. I mean, I think there are people in the room who are lawyers who probably don't know the laws. Maurice was talking about the protections that are afforded in the in the realm of um, employment law, but also what remedies are available in the realm of like reentry criminal law. Thank you very much. We have a few questions from the audience, and I'm going to ask. Um, this is uh, addressed to Maurice. When people lose their job due to incarceration, they're denied unemployment benefits. This is punitive and denies a safety net for those reentering. Is this something that should be changed? And how? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question because years ago they, they, there were situations where when you were incarcerated, you could collect some unemployment benefits. I actually, on the other side of my job, I spend a lot of time dealing with the unemployment insurance system. And um, so, I, I mean, I, I think that's a, I think whether it's unemployment benefits or some form of income support when people come out of prison, you know, that, and, and I think that's what Dr. Richardson was saying, people need a lot of help and they definitely need some income to get by. Otherwise, you know, and, and, and that's not unprecedented and they're, you know, it, it, there are really good arguments for doing that. It's a, it's a big lift if you're going to call it unemployment benefits, let me just say that because it's hard to get a lot of workers covered under the unemployment system, and I think folks with records are not going to be high on the list. So I would call it income support and think along those lines of, uh, and, and the other things that people need when they're getting out of prison. Okay, thank you. Um, another question for you. Um, many people have criminal, background with criminal backgrounds with charges that were dismissed, but show up in background checks. Is there any way to prevent employers from seeing dismissed charges? So I'm going to let Eliza deal with more of that, but I can just say that, as I mentioned, the fair, there, if, 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 the, if, the, if the record is being produced by a private screening firm, which is a lot of the records, if it's, it's either that or it's the state criminal record system if you're applying for some kind of job that's regulated by the state. The private screening firms are not supposed to report any arrests unless it's open, or any convictions going back seven, uh, more than seven years. So if there's a problem there, then that is a straight-up legal issue, and we're, we're, there's $1,000 per violation remedy for all that. So we're able to get some lawyers, and, and I know uh, Eliza's folks are working on that too. So that, that's kind of the law in that area. Uh, yes, there's rampant abuse of these laws, and, I, and, and that's what we really need to get at. We really need to get at, and there are ways for actually for the, the district attorney, other folks to get involved in enforcing what look like civil laws because they're patterns of violation and that sort of thing. But the, um, on a commercial criminal background check, one, you have a right to always get that from your employer, and you always should. And as Marie said, there's a penalty not against the employer for inaccurate information. The penalty is against the private company that puts together that criminal background check, and I would say Almost, no, uh, that's too much of an exaggeration. I mean, half have some significant error. And one of those errors we see is you're initially charged with three things. You get a conviction for one of those. Those two other um, charges not resulting in a conviction should not be on there. And you might um, have a good case to bring that $10,000 um, claim against the commercial criminal background check company that um, misreported your information. So how do you go about asking for that information from a potential employer and who can represent you um, in those types of uh, causes uh, if you're of action. Local, if you're local, I'm going to put out a hotline number. We have lots of stuff on the web and know your rights stuff and I, Eliza's folks do. Our, our hotline number is 510-409-2427. And so if you've got any issue, 
510-409-2427. So that's a person in our office who just handles these issues, especially filing discrimination charges, but also some of these consumer protection laws. Um, and the employers, if they're going to take an adverse action against you, they're supposed to provide you a copy with the record so that you have an opportunity to take a look at it and get it right. Uh, that's a violation of the federal law, too. So that's, that's really important. Get, get, get your hands on the thing, and they're supposed to tell you. If, they, if Obviously, a lot of times they're not going to tell you, and somehow in the background you know I, was, I, was, I lost this job because of my record. That's a, that's a harder equation to get a copy of the rap sheet, but we can work with you to try to figure that out, too. Okay, and one last question. Um, city police departments and county courts routinely publish names of arrestees and criminal defendants on the Internet. What can be done to protect people from the public dissemination of this kind of information? Um, well, I will say I think we're fortunate in at least Alameda County and I think San Francisco County. There are counties, I think, in Fresno and um, that, ha that do put all court records on the Internet, so very easily accessible. Um, the, there's, I mean, I've been in um, heated discussions. I know there maybe there's still some journalists in the room, um, but there are those competing First Amendment issues versus like the privacy concerns, and that gets played out in a lot of different realms. So I, I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that there are two good competing concerns: the the First Amendment issues and the um, protection of privacy. I know Maurice knows a lot about privacy. Something to add here. I just want to ask this. How many people in this room have ever checked their own criminal justice record? How many people in this room have ever checked their neighbor, check, check, checked uh, their children? I mean, I'm just going to say this to you. I mean, I mean, this is no longer the United States of America. I mean, we, we, we have protections supposedly for your medical records, for your education records. Like nobody knows your grades in college. We can protect medical records, education records. Why can't we protect legal records? Why does the public, why are people checking each other out? Why are people doing this? I mean, shouldn't that information just be for the courts and the police? Why is it even available? I mean, the next thing, you're going to put your medical records out there. They're going to put your grades out there. Can you imagine your grades out there? I mean, I think Eliza hit on why they're available. I, I think it's a First Amendment issue for the most part, and the, and the press has been pretty hard on that. And, you know, there's some court decisions out here that deal with that. I, I think it, it is. It's, it's a real sticky point. It's like these are public forums. This is public information at a certain level. But then when it goes from the courthouse up onto the web and then out into the blogosphere, like that's where it's, it's just totally out of control. And, and actually in California, we got some good laws that are supposed to deal with this too. California is one of the only state that doesn't put its state record systems online. And they're not even available to the public, the state records. But either we so, now I'm not saying you can't get it, right. I mean, obviously, so you can get it at the county level, et cetera. There are ways to get it. But I'm just saying, like, how you plug the hole is really tough. And then this is a, it's a really important issue. So I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I, I understand there is another side to it that, you know, let's, maybe it's too legal. Let's look at this a whole different way, though, okay? Let's provide for the fact that you don't have any privacy and that everybody is on the Internet checking everybody out, okay? 
I deal with people coming out of prison who are emailing me and calling me almost every day, who are coming out of jail, coming out of prison, they're convicted felons, they can't get jobs, they want to go to college. I tell you something now, it's hard to get into a public university now if you're a convicted felon, believe it or not. I mean, you're, you pay state taxes, but they won't let you in their university. I've had, I've had people coming out of prison denied admission to universities, or they get admission, but they're denied uh, a dormitory room because of their felony convictions. So, so what I say to people, this is what I say to felons. I say, stop hiding, because you, there's no place to hide anymore. That when you get out of prison, if you know you're a felon, that you've got to develop a way to talk about yourself. You've got to assume that they have your criminal record. When you, when you go applying for jobs, the biggest mistake convicted felons make is that they fill out some application at McDonald's and they leave it on the counter and they walk out. What I tell them to do is never let the application out of your hand. That, that go in there with a, with a one-page resume, fill out your application, and then, and then ask to see the manager. If the manager is not there, sit down until the manager comes back. When you do meet the manager, hand them your application, look them in the eye, and shake their hand. Now, maybe, maybe you'll get an interview. You never would have if you left the application because they're never going to call you. Mm -hmm. You've got to make it personal. You've got to make it one-on-one. -on -one. You've got to make it, I need a job, here's my application. That's why I tell them what to do. I'm trying to say this because, because with millions of people without with felony convictions and no real way to erase it. They have to learn how to, how to rap, how to talk about themselves in order to, to get a job. I, I guess to follow up on that, that's like a person-by-person person case. And I guess I hope that we're moving in the direction of whether or not people um, have their criminal records public, that we as a society stop making grand judgments about their character and their um, abilities based on that. So it's moving toward a meta second chance as a society that whether or not those records are public, they start meaning less or that we're more careful about the, um, the conclusions we draw from those. And that is time. I want to thank all of the panelists for taking time out of their busy schedules and for all the great work you do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We hope that the summit today has raised issues that you normally don't see on your broadcast TV. I think that we set out to accomplish three things. First, to question justice as it's presented and portrayed both on the news as well as in Hollywood movies. I think secondly, that we be honest about where the justice system is failing. And I appreciate not only the accolades, but the criticisms of even the public defender's office and how we can continue to improve upon the work that we do. Because make no mistake, at one time, our office was a public pretender's office, and we have taken huge steps to turn that around, to make justice
meaningful, to create outcomes that are just, that are reflective of the truth, as opposed to the prosecutor's truth or the judge's truth. And for those that may not feel that connection to the justice system, I heard, I heard in the last panel the cry of millions. It's no longer the exception. It's the rule that more Americans are being locked up and thrown behind bars. I mean, we're spending more money in California on prisons than we are education, right? We have too many people in the prisons and we're locking young people out of city college, out of state university now. And what is happening is more than an outrage. It is more than a waste of taxpayers' money. It is something that unless we take immediate steps to prevent, and you cannot, you cannot, I remember five years ago we were here talking about how the legislature has to change, how the governor has to change. You know, we've seen that that falls on deaf ears for the most part. That unless the people, unless the people revolt, unless the people make their voices heard, we're not going to see change. We're going to see more of the same. And we know that that's a recipe for failure. And so going forward, we must become involved in the justice system. It's not somebody else's problem. When your kid can't go to school, when there's no summer school for kids, you know, how can any of us be surprised? You know, in San Francisco this year, there's no summer school for kids. We don't have enough money. And then we're going to scratch our heads and wonder why the crime rates have gone up among our youth. We're going to scratch our heads and wonder why we're paying almost $300,000 to keep a young person locked up in the California Youth Authority. You know? And when you think about the cost to our society, to every person uh, that lives in our country that is supporting the prison industrial complex, it becomes very clear that we have no other option but to act and to act now. So I'm, I'm hoping that through the discussions today that you will be motivated to get involved in not ordinary injustice, but everyday justice. Because that's what the promise of our country is. And we've yet to live up to that promise. So I look forward to working with all of you collaboratively. We obviously don't have all the solutions, all the answers, but working together, we can forge a new vision, an exciting vision, vision uh, perhaps one that hasn't been tried before, uh, but uh, something uh, that we are desperately uh, in need of. Um, so we uh, invite you to stay in contact with us throughout the year. Our website, sfpublicdefender.org, um, visit us often. And we look forward uh, to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue uh, in the future. So again, thank you very much for attending. I want to thank the Rosenberg Foundation for its support. I want to thank SFGovTV uh, for uh, filming this. And again, uh, thank you very much.